Hello, it's Friday 21st of January. I'm Hannah Pearson. Welcome to part two of our annual travel wishlist show as Gary Bowerman and I set out 22 positive changes we'd like to see for travel and tourism in 2022. So let's get started. This is the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Hello wherever you are in the world and thanks for listening in. So this is part two of our third annual travel wishlist show, which this year we're calling 22 for 2022. Hannah and I have put together a list of 20 ways in which travel and tourism could get better this year. Plus we've included two extra ideas submitted by our learned listeners, which makes a total of 22. So Hannah, before we dive in, let's take a quick recap of the first half of our 22 item wish list, which we unveiled last week. Yeah, exactly. So number one was having a separate border control um, from tourism management. We had no target setting unless it's rational and can be considered achievable. That's a, that's a big ask, isn't it, for governments? <laughs> um, number three, um, that the word reopening disappears from our vocabulary. It's not happened yet, has it? Number four, outbound travel to start in a meaningful way. Number five is that the China market returns. And number six, that was a submission from one of our listeners, Timothy O'Neill Dunn, who said a community standard for health. Seven was an intra-ASEAN travel without quarantines. Will we see that happen? Uh, Definitely a lot of talk about that again this week with the ATF going on. Eight, a regional recognition that quarantines are unworkable. Nine, a recognition of the value that backpacker tourism brings. 10, digital transformation gets serious for SMEs. And 11, just coming to terms with the fact that the pandemic has changed so many things, some temporarily, some permanently. So let's get into the second half of the list, right, Gary? And what's up first? Yeah, so this is one of your choices, Hannah. And this is that we really hope for less media sensationalism this year. Now, is that really possible? I don't think so, is it? I mean, we've seen over the last couple of years just how, I I guess, how many eyeballs um, articles about travel get. And so, so many different newspapers are very willing. And, you know, we we had a great podcast uh, with... Vincent Vijay Vatican uh, last year, and he was talking about this as well, about how the media really runs with stories that are not yet confirmed. And this just creates this whole climate of kind of fear, I think, as, as well amongst consumers. So let's just take Thailand as an example. Even before the Test and Go scheme was cancelled, there were lots of media reports saying it was going to be cancelled. Then there were lots of media reports that there was going to be a deadline which travellers were going to have to enter Thailand by. And this never appeared in the in the Royal Gazette when, when it finally became law. Um, so all of these just, just add to the stress for travellers. It adds to the stress for, for tourism stakeholders too. And you know, quite frankly, I'm, I'm kind of sick of it, aren't you? <laughs> well, yeah, it's true. I mean, it's, it's, it's front and centre of all the news stories worldwide and has been for two years. And as we've said on the podcast several times before, travel and tourism was never as high profile as it's been in the region when there actually hasn't been much travel and tourism. And that, of course, is because of COVID-19. We have seen a return since Omicron came to daily case counting. I noticed on a lot of media, you, you just see all the time numbers of cases flashed up again. We've kind of gone, gone away from that. But, you know, you look at some of the places, I mean, Australia is just the, the example at the moment where the cases have just increased spectacularly since they changed their, their entire policy around 
COVID-19. So I don't think this is going to go away for some time yet. It, it's interesting in the region at the moment there. It does seem to be this sort of emerging sense that there is a bit more positivity for this year than governments might, we'll come to this later, governments might take slightly different approaches across the year. But, you know, the media isn't going to take a different approach because uh, these headlines, as you said, they, they grab eyeballs. Yeah. And it kind of leads nicely onto our point too then. Um, so about the travel media being responsible with its COVID and pandemic terminology. And this is one of yours, Gary, wasn't it? Yeah, this this was evoked by, I'm sorry, I'm going to call them out here, was uh, Travel Weekly Asia, which this week published a story um, with a headline entitled Unique Experiences for the Post-Pandemic Traveler. Now, we can't be using terms like post-pandemic. It's entirely misleading. It's entirely inaccurate. And, you know, we do have to be much, much more responsible with our wording. I know that we all want travel and tourism to come back. We want to infuse more positivity into the industry, but we have to be cautious. We, we can't start using those terms because, as we've seen, you know, numerous times over the past year, and you, you referenced Thailand there, Hannah, you know, as soon as there is this optimism that travel is coming back, we saw that in November, and then um and then COVID-19 takes control again. So we have to be wary that this, this post-pandemic term is simply something we cannot use. Uh, that, that article was, it was uh, not actually written by the, the magazine itself. It was a contributed piece, I think, by uh, the Visit Maldives. But, you know, again, you have the control over how you word your headlines. And I, I think that's irresponsible, personally. Yeah, I mean, I think everybody kind of recognizes at this point, are we going to have a post-pandemic period? Maybe an endemic period. But yeah, I mean, pre-pandemic, okay, there's, there's a definite uh, starting point, right? But post-pandemic, that's really a gray area. So yeah, I, I agree with that. So moving on, and another communications <laughs> theme to one you can, I think our listeners can really see a theme with this is that governments start communicating with common sense, not in these vacuous acronyms or neologisms and proxy terms that they have before, but that they really <laughs> say what they mean. Is that going to happen, Gary? <laughs> well, I think you've hit the nail on the head there, say what they mean. And it's been very difficult for governments to actually clarify what they actually mean, not just what they say. That's been part of the problem. I think one of the things that everybody accepts is that, you know, it's been difficult to be in government anywhere over the past two years. It's been very difficult to manage borders. It's been very difficult to to put together uh, travel and tourism policies, when, particularly when all your neighbors are doing very, very different things. It's very, very hard to to get some sort of integration there. But we have just seen too much psychobabble. Governments have learned. I think we are starting to see, I think Malaysia is, is a good example. We've started to see the health sector here using much more clarified, much more simplistic terminology. It doesn't really try and overlay this with complicated things that, that can be ambiguous. He's just really going straight down the line and saying this can happen or that can't happen and trying to use science uh, and trying to be guided by what's the situation right now. I think we understand that governments, it's very difficult for them to plan ahead. You know, everybody at the moment is is just really responding to, to new waves, new surges, community infections, imported infections. All these things are very, very difficult. But we do have to simplify the psychobabble. And this, this, you know, this really refers also to tourism. We've seen over the last year, some some terminology which is just very, very ambiguous. Like in Thailand, we had these extension areas. I think in Laos, we've had green travel zones and green travel trails. Uh, we've heard more and more of these these kind of terms like circuit breakers. And let's just strip all that out. It, let, let's make tourism what it used to be, which is you know a pretty simple industry. Uh, people love to travel. They need to, well, not just tourism, but ch travel in general. People 
need or, or want to travel. But okay, we have to have testing. Okay, we have to have rules. But you know, let's get away away from these terminologies which confuse people and and don't really add any value whatsoever. Yeah, they they often just confuse everybody, don't they? What do they mean? What does it mean if it's a blue zone in Thailand versus an orange zone versus a red zone? No. You, you've got to read the fine print and travelers don't want to have to read the fine print. No, and not when it keeps changing. You know, that we've seen, as you said, with some of these zonal terms, they just change so often. They become simply meaningless. And yeah, I just hope that this year, I have a feeling, I'm, I'm somewhat positive on this, the governments will start to be a bit more clear, but yeah, there's a lot of work to do there. Absolutely. So moving on, number four, uh, and this is one of my picks, more vaccine equality. You know, th- this is not a, just a wish for Southeast Asia, but of course, in, in general, um, for the world. And when we were talking about the uh, rise of Omicron in our podcast last year, um, this is one of the, the talking points we were talking about as well. And, you know, it, it's on the news that the fact that until everybody is vaccinated, we are going to keep getting these variants and these are going to disrupt everything. So no matter whether you've had your third booster shot or your fourth booster shot, like in Cambodia, um, until everybody um, has some kind of level of protection against the variants, they're going to keep coming back. You know, there's been news stories this week about how Indonesia has had to throw away 1 million vaccine doses because they were donated from Western countries with a very, very short expiry date. It, It all comes back to this rich countries uh, procuring all of the vaccine doses and and then once once they're done with it then distributing it whereas things should be done on really a more equitable way in the region but i think this is a bit of a long shot i think that we have seen that governments around the world much prefer to take a more individualized approach rather than um, working together to solve this yeah it's a fascinating point if, if we roll back the the dice to one year ago, just before vaccines were rolled out. You know, in, in our region in particular, there was huge concern about how we would get the, the quantities of vaccines that we need. And as the vaccine rollout started, they were very kind of drip fed, particularly here in Malaysia is a good example. There wasn't the quantity initially that, that was required. That's changed over the last year, particularly here in Malaysia. Now we're rolling out the booster campaign here and it's, it's going quite fast um, because the vaccines seem to be available now. It's interesting what happened during the period of last year. I mean, it really will be seen, I think, in history as the year of the vaccine. But I think 2022, a lot of this is going to change as well. We will have new vaccines this year, perhaps to counter uh, variants that are going to come in future. We don't know about that yet. We're also going to have more treatments uh, and more uh, antivirals that you know, may actually be, become more widely available. But again, as you said, Hannah, you know, where will they become available first? How quickly will they be able to be distributed to, to where the need really is right now. And Omicron really, really highlighted this, didn't it? Is that the, these new variants will emerge from places where vaccine coverage is quite low or where people haven't been able to get the booster shot and, and the period of vaccination for the first two shots has expired. So yeah, it's, it's a troubling period. But yeah, I mean, you know, that, that, that phrase that was used last year, that the whole world is in this together, that still applies, doesn't it? in terms of overcoming or, or at least confronting the future of, of the pandemic. But yeah, these vaccines are, are just proving very, very difficult in a lot of areas in the world. And yeah, it comes down to, to wealth, doesn't it? It's a, it's a wealth gap and that's what the vaccine gap is. Yeah, absolutely. 
So moving on to number five then, and that's the removal of the requirement to book through approved tour agents only. I think, Gary, that was one of your picks, wasn't it? It was one of my picks, and I'd be interested in, in, view, in your view on this, Hannah. I mean, we've in a couple of countries, the sort of partial, we use the term again, reopening. Uh, Malaysia is a good example, the international travel bubble in Langkawi, uh, Vietnam. The, the actual ability to travel, the, the supply lines are through approved tour agents only. And I spoke to a few uh, international travel bubble tourists in Langkawi over the Christmas holidays, and they said that, you know, Everything is channeled. It, the prices are much, much higher. You have you have very little choice on what you can do, and you know that keeps prices high, removes any real level of choice. And I don't know whether this is just a short term expedient or whether this is something that's going to roll out into into the future. What are your views on that, Hannah? Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because on the one hand, I can see why governments are doing this. You know, a lot of these tour agents have had zero income and you don't want to be giving all of that income perhaps to to international owned OTAs like why why should you be giving Expedia or Agoda or booking.com or any of those big giants the booking dollars when it could be going directly to a tour agent instead um, and supporting your own economy um so from that side definitely I, I I see the logic behind that you've also got you know that element of control which does allow governments to ensure that these tour agents are adhering to whatever strict requirements are in place or the SOPs, as they like to call them in Malaysia. But as you say, you know, that does contribute to a higher price. That contributes to less choice. And in some cases, for example, in Vietnam, that means that only a very select few actually get to benefit from these reopening schemes. So in Vietnam, it's mainly some of the huge conglomerates who are actually benefiting from the reopening, whereas perhaps some of the smaller guys who haven't been approved have got no chance of making revenue still because everything has to be channeled through these bigger conglomerates. So it, it's it's really complicated. I mean, the idea would be, yes, to just reopen to all, but somehow there has to be some kind of way, I think, to be able to support the local tourism industry as well. So whether that is perhaps governments have to be a bit stricter in terms of pricing controls or ensuring that there isn't kind of price fixing amongst tour agents to give that flexibility and that choice perhaps that's something longer longer term they need to look at but it is complicated i think that's very well expressed i think you've 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 nailed everything there it just does seem at the moment i mean we're still in the very early stages of what what will happen there's this divergence of approaches and as we're seeing in some southeast asian countries you know as you said this this move towards control this this move towards um, supporting tour agents and, as you said, selected numbers of, of travel operators. And then you look at somewhere like Australia, where Australia is now trying to welcome back free, free booking backpackers um, because it needs to support its working economy and its travel economy. So you're just seeing very, very di- divergent approaches. And how that will pan out, we, we really have no idea whether there'll be greater convergence as, as, as the year goes on. Perhaps that, that's the case. But at the moment, it does look very different in our region than it does elsewhere. Yeah, it does. So moving on to number six, and this was a contribution from one of our listeners as well. So this is from Karen Newett, who's the TTG Asia Group Editor. And she said, how about a standard approach to operational changes required of hotels, attractions, restaurants, tours and activities, as well as border controls whenever a new community outbreak of concern occurs, instead of surprise curfews, or severe capacity caps that sometimes have no end in sight. 
She said an expected standard approach would allow business owners to make better plans and for consumers to have more confidence in planning activities, especially travel. What do you make of that, Gary? <laughs> well, again, it makes absolutely logical sense, but it is that divergence between governmental approaches and the business approach, isn't it? They're very, very different. Governments have different issues to consider when they're putting together their, their tourism and their border strategies going forward. The, the travel industry has been calling out for two years for much more clarity, for much more longer term thinking. Governments counter that by saying, yes, but we're in a situation where, as Omicron has shown, it, it can happen very, very quickly. And there are necessary changes. Perhaps there are learnings from Omicron. I think governments in our region have, have responded. They responded fast in terms of shutting things down. They're now looking to reopen again. Maybe there were some learnings from this wave. We were very, very rattled in our region by Delta, understandably. You know, it did, it did it cause huge problems across the region. Omicron, too. But you just wonder whether government approaches have slightly changed. But in terms of whether they're going to come towards a standard approach for operations, no, I, I really don't see it happening. And, and even if individual countries do that, that won't be applied across the region. We, we do need much more integrated approach. You mentioned at the beginning that ATF and tourism ministers again have said that they're looking to reopen some kind of corridor together. And yet you look at the way Governments are talking day by day, and they're entirely different. Thailand is going, is going its own way. Malaysia is going its own way. Singapore is going its own way. There simply isn't this coordination that is promoted at things like ATF. And, and until there is, you know, the region will struggle. I, I don't think there's any doubt about that. You have to look at what happened in the EU last year. Although this idea that there was a common way of uh, addressing vaccinated status did actually support growth of, of travel and tourism last summer. There were ramifications for that, of course, but without an integrated approach, the, the region is, is, is going to continue to struggle. Yeah, I agree with that. So, yeah, I absolutely think that what Karen said makes sense. And it is so difficult for business owners right now to make any kind of strategic plan, because as soon as a new variant comes up, you've no idea, do you? You've no idea how seriously the government is going to take this, what the thresholds are. If they close you down, when are they going to reopen? So ideally, there would be some kind of plan that the government, you know, publish, okay, this is the threshold. And if this reaches this, then we will do that. And when it reaches this again, we will do this. Um, and that would make things a lot easier to plan, you know, manpower and operational capacity and everything else. But like you say, governments don't quite seem to be there in a regional one. I mean, that would be a dream. But I, I think it's just that a dream, unfortunately. So brilliant idea. If Karen were in charge, perhaps we would <laughs> have a different asking. <laughs> <laughs> That's very, very true. So let's move on to number seven. And this is one of yours, Hannah. This is that domestic tourism stimulus packages should be thought out to assist players across the whole value chain. Yeah. Um, and this is really recognizing that, you know, and many inbound tourism players have had to pivot to the domestic market. But we have not seen, you know, governments have come out with stimulus packages. For example, Thailand has had the Tour Tiao Thai, which is meant to be supporting uh, travel agents selling tour packages, but actually has had a really, really low pickup. And I think that there are different reasons behind that, but also it's quite complicated. We really need governments to focus on domestic tourism. And we've said that domestic tourism is going to have to be the focus, I think, still in 2022. But to ensure how can stimulus packages or 
you know, special promotions that they're putting together really benefit that whole supply chain. Some of these guys have been hanging on by a thread for the past couple of years. How can you ensure that this kind of money benefits everybody? Um, how can you design these stimulus packages to promote that? So, for example, we look at even airlines again in Malaysia. Let's say a lot of domestic travel happens by self-drive. You know, a lot of people would just get in their car and drive, then perhaps choose to fly. If you were designing a domestic stimulus package, how could you make sure that that was covered? There's been a lot lower occupancy levels in hotels, the, the two-star, the three-star, the budget range. How can you support those to ensure that they get customers too? There really needs to be some thoughts, some digging into assessing what's going on with all of these different tourism players and designing support packages that will help at least generate some revenue until things really get kickstarted again. What do you think? Yeah, very well said. I agree with all of that. I think the, the interesting thing perhaps about domestic, you know, you're right, 2022 is going to be very, very primarily domestic tourism focused. But what happens after that? So if we're starting to look at the whole value chain, are we looking at how we invest in domestic tourism for the longer term or is this just a short term expedient? You know, governments don't have an answer to that because that most of them want to welcome back international travel. And domestic tourism will, you know, in terms of priority, will take a back seat once that happens. But as, as the uh, pandemic has shown, not just in our region, but I think worldwide, domestic tourism has actually flourished, not just because people can't travel overseas, although that obviously that is the key driver, because people have actually realized that on their doorstep are, are so many experiences they've never had before. Um, and that's, you know, that's, very positive for, for, or it should be very positive for the industry. There should be ways to help it flourish and grow even more. Um, Self-drive, as you mentioned, there is certainly a very, very key part of that. So let's hope that travel industry and governments can work together to, to promote domestic tourism in a more longer term and sustainable way, which, as you said, benefits everybody, you know, all the small businesses, the large businesses too, the travelers themselves, and people in local communities as well. There is a way, I do believe, to make domestic tourism more functional and, and more meaningful. But yeah, it's going to take a lot of work again. And you know, whether the political will is there to do that, I guess, remains to be seen. Yeah, I think that's the big question, isn't it? Whether now the prospects the tantalizing prospect of international travel uh, is just in front of you. Do you just go all out for that? Or do you still, you know, put support behind domestic tourism? And I think our listeners know where Gary and I fall on that, on that side of the argument. So let's move into a more another developmental issue. Hannah, again, this is one of yours. This is number eight. And this is the tourism industry could be seen as an attractive one again for fresh grads. Yeah. And it, it's not only for fresh grads, really, but for for everybody, I suppose. Um, we have seen such an outflow of people from the tourism industry over the last couple of years, and understandably so. You know, pay cuts, shortened hours, put on furlough, just made redundant altogether. So it's no surprise that the number of tourism industry workers um, has decreased. But now as things are starting to pick up, how can the tourism industry try to attract back that talent? And particularly for fresh graduates, and we have talked about this on the podcast before last year, how can you ensure that, you know, these fresh tourism graduates now see tourism as an attractive one? They have grown up in the past couple of years um, and seen that the kind of chaos and destruction that the tourism industry can face 
And if you are looking for a reliable career, the tourism industry is not one that's going to be on the top of your list and certainly not on the top of your parents' list, which we know is pretty important in Asia. Yeah, what what can the tourism industry do? And of course, without these fresh graduates, how are you going to get innovation? How are we going to be able to adapt to new technologies that are coming in as well? Um, you know, you need those fresh eyes. You need the fresh blood of, of, of graduates, tourism graduates to come in. Um, and I was, I was talking to my, um, I have a, a wonderful intern, Celine, and I was talking to her about this yesterday. And she said, you know, she'd studied tourism at university. And she said, hardly any of her peers now have gone into the tourism industry. They've all gone into different things, but very, very few into the tourism industry. And that's, it's kind of heartbreaking, I think. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's a, it's a, it's a really hot topic. And I did three um, guest lectures for universities in, in Asia and in the UK just before Christmas. And it was really interesting to get the responses, which was slightly different. So when I was speaking to the tutors before the, the events, they were all saying, how can we inspire tourism and hospitality studies students now to, to feel that there is a future? Because although they're studying hard, although they're very interested in their careers in the future, they do feel right now that the, the opportunities for them are going to be much, much narrower than they were before, which I, I guess is probably true. And then when you speak to the students themselves, they actually want to know what are the opportunities, where are going to be the angles that they might be able to, to make their careers thrive in future. But the absolute point about all of this is what you said there, Hannah. This is a real turning point for travel and tourism worldwide. And this is a point where the new generation has to, has to come through. Now, we've seen much of the industry is led by experienced professionals. That's right. That's most industries are that way. But there are so many changes in consumer perceptions, traveler perceptions, and a lot of these are being driven by younger people. We do in our region have generally a, a younger population, and there are a lot of ideas, there are a lot of thoughts about the way they want to travel in future, um, which aren't being catered to by the tourism industry as it currently exists. So we do need to move into a transition period where we become much more aware of how technology is being used by young people, their approaches to environmentalism, these kinds of things, and also what experiences they actually want in future. Uh, and if we don't bring those, those fresh minds through, the industry will, will stagnate or, or just try to go back to where it was before. And this is a way to move forward. We do have to move forward. We have to find new ways forward. And, and I believe young people are absolutely crucial to that. Moving on then to number nine, and this is one of your picks, Gary, that all tourism businesses are required to set and publish zero emissions targets or updates. Yeah, that's probably quite controversial. But, you know, the only way forward for, for protecting the environment is if all businesses in all industries have to set their targets going forward and stick to them. There must be implementation. There must be enforcement. Governments, are, they set these big, zero emissions targets looking ahead to 2030 or 2050. Um, but those can only be achieved if not just industrial industries, but you know, also all parts uh, of economies contribute and, and find a way to, to decarbonize our environments. It's a big issue. It's a huge topic. And it's not one that's going to be solved easily. It's going to have a lot of implications. It's going to have a lot of costs. And it's going to change the way that people travel and the way the industries work. But it is coming. I, I don't see that there's any way around this. Climate change is, is here. It's real. And the impacts are, 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 are devastating across all continents. And unless we actually start accepting that we have to contribute to change, um, then change doesn't happen. Yeah, absolutely. Well said. I, I don't think I need to, to say more around that one. 
Next is the recognition that travel and tourism societal contribution is more than a percentage of GDP. And that was one of your picks as well, wasn't it, Gary? Yeah, and I think that refers back to the last point as well, is that we we tend to view travel and tourism purely, or, or it's become, in the media especially, you know, a percentage of GDP. We always, when we talk about Thailand, we say it's this tourism-reliant industry and it has somewhere between 12 and 20% of a contribution to GDP without actually working out what that really means. They're just figures. And you can tell stories with figures that are they're inaccurate. Even if tourism contributes 20% of GDP in Thailand, well, there's 80% that come from other areas. So it's, it's kind of strange to say that it's just a, a tourism-reliant economy. Of course, tourism is very, very important for, for the jobs and the revenues that it creates. But Let's put that into, into, into greater context. And I think we also have to look at in futures, we, as we were saying just there, Hannah, you know, how will young people be able to get involved? How will local communities contribute to tourism's future? There are different ways that people are going to want to travel in future. And just, just always just tripping out these numbers as, as percentages, I, I don't really think it, it adds any meaning at all. It's just, uh, it's almost filler, really, I think, for, for articles and, and for comments. And I think we have to just dig a bit deeper. Yeah, I mean, you're right. And I think, yes, of course, tourism contributes financially to the country, but it also contributes so much more, doesn't it? It's that interchange of people. It's that meeting of, of minds that I think travel is just so much more intrinsic, I think, than and just, just, a, just a number, just a percentage to a country's value. And let's hope that that can be recognized this year. Yeah, I agree. And that relates back to number seven with domestic tourism. As we were saying, people have learned more about their own countries, their own cultures, their own cuisines than they ever did before. That's, that's a positive output from, from travel, um, which isn't related to, uh, to GDP. Yes. And so number 11, um, and this is, this is the last one on our list, and it's a more uplifting one, really. Um, this is one of yours, Gary. Can we bring the fun back? Can travel become fun again? It would be nice, wouldn't it? It would be nice to to recognize that travel and tourism are deceptively simple industries, really. It's people escaping. It's people going to do the things that they want to do, taking a break from, from routines and going to see and to learn and to experience and, and to understand and to find out more about stuff that they didn't know about before. That's what travel and tourism is really about. And we've lost sight of that over the last two years. Understandably, the whole world has changed. Everything has changed. But it would be nice if 2022 was the year that that fun element started to return. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you think about travel right now, you're thinking about tests and quarantines and tracking with apps and a lot of unfun stuff. But like you say, travel is about exploration. It's about adventure. It's about meeting people. It's it's fun. It should be fun. So let's hope that this is the year that it does become fun again. Yeah, and that we can find ways to do that safely and securely. Of course, we have to understand the, the overall context, but you're right. You know, the, I think domestic travelers prove that it can be done. You, that there are ways to, to still get away and still in, enjoy and to take a break and you know, to release the, the strains of, uh, of the pandemic. But yeah, it would be nice if it just became more fun. <laughs> and on that note, that brings us to the end of our two-part 22 for 2022 Travel Wishlist show. We hope you enjoyed the two podcasts and don't forget to send us your thoughts and comments on what we discussed or anything we missed out. You can drop us a message on our LinkedIn page at the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Yep. Meanwhile, you can catch up with the Southeast Asia Travel Show's full back catalogue 
on our website, www.theseasiatravelshow.com. And of course, you can listen to every episode, including this one, on all the various international podcast platforms. Again, just search for the Southeast Asia Travel Show on each one. And that's a wrap for today. We'll both return next Friday with a look ahead to the Lunar New Year travel season around the region. We look forward to seeing you then.